All right, so just quick recap. Last week we looked at chapter 36, which kind of really just sets the stage for what we're going to see here in chapter 37. Um, but we saw the, the tremendous challenge that is facing uh, Hezekiah and Jerusalem with at least part of the Assyrian army camped outside the city. Uh, Sennacherib has taken uh, a bunch of cities from in Judah, and he sends his military official, the Rabshakeh, uh, to bring a message, right? And, and uh, this military official is, is cleverly mixing kind of half-truths and outright falsehood in his message to, uh, to Hezekiah and to the people of Jerusalem about why they should not trust in the Lord to save them. And he's really mocking uh, the Lord's ability to save his own people, right, from the hand of, of Sennacherib. Um, he's also... Uh, in the way he's phrasing things, he's, he's really setting up this um, contest between uh, the true king of the universe, right, God, uh, Yahweh, and the king of Assyria, who is, uh, in some sense, claiming ultimate kingship for himself, right? Uh, and also, another note before we dive into chapter 37, is we need to remember that um, in, this, in this challenging situation, that Jerusalem is in, and this is this is true really throughout Scripture. Whenever God's people are threatened, um, there there's the threat operating on a personal level, right? It's very real for these people in the city um, that they. Uh, the question is, you know, will they be saved or will they be lost to their enemies, right? But there's also another deeper level um, of threat going on, and that's the threat to the promises of God whether or not they'll actually be fulfilled, right? So, um, the you know, think, think of the promises that were made to Abraham uh, of, of uh, him being a blessing to all peoples on earth and the number of offspring that he'll have, right, being greater than the number of the stars in the sky. That's all threatened at this point as well. So it's not just the, the people in that moment, but it's these bigger, um, bigger issues that are at stake. Uh, the promises to David, right, that he would have someone sit on his throne forever, right? That's uh, being threatened in this moment as well. Um, and so we have to keep that in mind. Um, so uh, there's, there's these big old, bigger questions of, of whether or not God's promises will uh, be unfulfilled, right, forever. Uh, or will he, will he come through? Um, and as we'll see... Uh, this is all tied up together again. Those aren't two separate things. The, the personal threat to the people in Jerusalem at that moment and this bigger threat to God's promises going unfulfilled are bound up together um, because God's, the fate of God's people, are, it's always bound up. It's tied to his, his own glory and his honor, right, which we can take comfort in. So, okay, let's um, dive in then to chapter uh, 37. Uh, so we finished at the very end of chapter 36. Uh, Hezekiah's officials wisely, because Hezekiah has told them, you know, don't answer. They don't give an answer. They take the message that they have uh, received from this military official and they bring it to Hezekiah. So let me read uh, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 37. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and the senior priests covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, 
of rebuke and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. We'll pause there um, and just note uh, a few things um, from this from this section. So notice um, Hezekiah's response clearly indicates a sense of humility on his part, right? And repentance and turning to the Lord in dependence on him, which is a contrast to what he had done before, right? When he had uh, taken the, the money out of the temple and stripped the gold off the doors to send as a tribute, um, he had tried to rely on Egypt. Now he's finally, uh, in this moment of crisis, turning to the Lord uh, in repentance and and humility and trust. Right? He goes into the to the temple, so he's showing this by his actions. He tears tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth, um, the common sign of, of repentance and humility in the Old Testament, uh, and he goes to the temple to the place where um, it was symbolized that God dwelt with His people. Uh, so he's seeking the face of the Lord in this circumstance. Notice also that in his message to um, to Isaiah, he doesn't actually mention himself anywhere. He he is rightly now recognizing that this is ultimately a question of God's glory. Um, yes, he's involved, but his concern is not for himself. Uh, his concern is for for God's glory, um, and he recognizes that, he, he admits, right, that they have no strength left in themselves. That's what that kind of interesting imagery in, in verse 3 of a child coming to the point of birth, but there's no strength left to, uh, for, the, for the child to be born. Uh, it's, it's just a recognition that they've got nothing left. There's nowhere else they can turn. Uh, and again, it's, it's that sense of humility, which is the opposite, right, of the pride that they had been rebuked for previously. Uh, and then he, he appeals to God's concern for his own glory. But he also has that little note at the end about uh, the people, right? Lift, um, therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left, that is, for these people of God that are still here. Because, again, what happens to them in some way reflects on uh, the Lord himself. Similar to the way that, um, if you think back, Moses prayed you know, at times during the Exodus, when he says, if you wipe these people out, what will that say about you and, and, and you keeping your promises to your people? Um, okay, any questions on that section? We're going to keep moving. This is a long chapter. All right, so in verses 5 through 7, uh, we get Isaiah's response to these uh, officials, and it's pretty immediate, right? Uh, verse 5, when the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, say to your master, Thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. So again, it, it seems at least that Isaiah, uh, his response is, is pretty immediate, um, he already knows the message that the Lord has given him, uh, and he gives it to these officials to take back to Hezekiah. And um, if you remember last week, we, we noted how uh, the military official uses uh, the kind of similar formula, right, that the prophets used. And he says, 
Um, for example, in verse, let's see, where is it? Verse 4 of chapter 36, the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, right? Here we see Isaiah, right, uses the typical formula, thus says the Lord, verse 6. So it really, again, is, is setting up this contest um, between these two kings, right? The, the earthly king, Sennacherib, and the heavenly king, or the true king, uh, the Lord himself. And... So this is, this is a contest to see who is the real king, who, who really does rule uh, over the, the affairs of this part of the world. And we obviously know the answer, but the Lord is going to demonstrate that clearly. Um, it, it's really about whose word will prevail, right? Thus says the king of Assyria, thus says the Lord. Uh, that's, that's the dividing line, right? What's, what's, what's going to play out here uh, is the answer to, to which of those will prevail, um, and, and that again highlights that root issue of, of pride, right? Uh, if you look back all the way to chapter 10, Isaiah had already, um, said that this would be the case. So Isaiah 10 verse 12 says, when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount, on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes, um, you know, Doctor Master has mentioned this as well. But, but pride is is really the the sin from which all other sins kind of spring. Right? It's ultimately at root, and it's very clear in the King of Assyria. It's a little more subtle sometimes in our own hearts. But pride is is dethroning God and and putting ourselves uh, in the place of Him. Right? In, in the throne of of our lives, setting ourselves up as the one who has our own authority over ourselves rather than recognizing the rightful authority of, of God. Um, so Isaiah's answer then, he says, thus says the Lord, uh, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard. So first he tells Hezekiah not to fear uh, because God is going to act. He makes it clear, right, that the Lord is not ignoring or uh, not hearing this mocking that's coming from them. Um, he says uh, that, um, yeah, because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. And even in that word young men, there's a little bit of a, like an undercutting. It's kind of like these underlings, these little, these little guys. It's kind of the, the word uh, in, in Hebrew. Um, so the Lord is clearly going to do something um, to demonstrate that he is the true king. And uh, there's a bit of irony in the way he's going to do it, right? Um, in verse 7, he says, Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. What's, what's the irony uh, in that? If you look back to some of the speeches that the Rabshakeh had made in chapter 36, anyone see it? kind of earlier in the chapter, in the first, uh, the first speech that he gives. Uh, one of the ways in which, so if you look at verse 5, I think it is, um, yeah, do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? That's what the Rabshakeh had been 
sort of mocking them. Now, he's initially alluding to the fact, probably, that Hezekiah had tried to use diplomatic efforts to bring some alliances. But I think there's a bit of irony going on here in that the Lord is going to at least start the downfall of Sennacherib with a word. It's a rumor, right? He's going to hear a rumor. That's going to cause him to divert his attention. Uh, and this is going to be the way in which the Lord ultimately um, brings about his triumph over the king of Assyria. All right, any questions on that section so far? So this is the response that uh, Isaiah has from God that he gives to Hezekiah. Um, and then we get in uh, verses 8 through 13, we're going to see a little bit of historical detail given again, and then we're going to see uh, the reply back again from Assyria to Hezekiah. So there's this series of interchanges that keep happening back and forth uh, between both parties. Uh, verse 8, the Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king heard concerning Tirhaka, king of Cush, he has set out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed? Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, the king of Hena, or the king of Iba? Uh, so first we get this little uh, kind of historical description of, of what happens, uh, some of the details surrounding um, the movements of the Assyrian army. Um, he apparently, Sennacherib, has pulled away from Lachish. We don't actually know where Libna is, but speculation is it's a little bit north of, of Lachish. Um, and he has apparently heard about some threat from uh, Tirhaka. Tirhaka was an Ethiopian ruler who will end up becoming king of, um, king of Cush. But apparently he, uh, he, as in Sennacherib, thinks there's a possible threat there. Um, so... He's obviously still got some things he's got to think about, right? He's got a large army far from home. Um, he's probably worried about the fact that maybe he's having to fight on multiple fronts. Um, and so he's trying to figure out how to handle this situation. But he's at least still confident he can take Jerusalem, right? Um, because as we'll see, he sends a message back to Hezekiah. Um, just, a, just a note kind of, of application on that. Um, historians, you know, can analyze events and come up with, with, you know, historical reasons or explanations why certain things happen, right? And we almost have that here in the passage itself. Um, we get the historical details about what's going on. But in light of what Isaiah had just told Hezekiah, we know ultimately the Lord is behind all of this, right? The Lord often uses historical means, maybe we could even say usually uses historical means to carry out his purposes. Um, but we recognize, you know, today we don't have explicit word about why the Lord is doing things, but anything you hear in, uh, and read in the news, or if you're studying history, you know, in college and 
learning about why certain things happened. Uh, there are certainly historical reasons they happen. The Lord uses means. But we have to remember as Christians, we always have to keep in mind that the Lord is behind all of that, right? He's, he's doing it for his purposes. He has a grand design for what will bring him glory, uh, what will save his people, what will honor Christ, uh, and it's going to culminate in Christ's return. And all of the things that are happening, whether it's in our own personal lives or on the grand scheme of nations and rulers uh, and the death of a queen and, and war in, in Ukraine, all of that right, is happening for, for God's purposes. And again, we can take, we can take comfort uh, in that fact. Um, now, interestingly, we're not told what Hezekiah replied back to Sennacherib. Like, we don't get that explicitly anywhere in, in the passage itself, right? So we kind of have to read between the lines into what Sennacherib sends back to Hezekiah to figure out what Hezekiah might have said uh, to, to Sennacherib. And we, we don't want to go too far in doing that, but I think you can, you can see some um, clear indications in Sennacherib's message back of what Hezekiah probably said to uh, to Sennacherib. We'll see some. We'll notice some differences uh, between this response and the initial speeches that we saw in chapter thirty-six from the Rabshakeh. Um, so one of the differences I think is, is if you look at verse ten, it's pretty clear that Hezekiah is now fully trusting in the Lord. And he must have indicated this in his reply back to Sennacherib, right? Um, so again, verse, verse 10, he says, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. So here's the message. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. So it sounds like Hezekiah maybe flat out told Sennacherib, Look, the Lord promised us he's not giving us into your hand. And so Sennacherib is having to like, confront that directly. Don't let the Lord deceive you, which again is kind of, it's ratcheting up the, uh, the blasphemy here, right? He's directly now, you know, if you look back, um, previously the Rabshakeh had said to the people in Judah, don't let Hezekiah deceive you. Um, that's verse 14 of chapter 36. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. So initially he's challenging Hezekiah. Now he's directly challenging the Lord. Don't let the Lord deceive you, right? He's calling the Lord a liar. Um, and it's not going to go well. Um, so that's one of the things we can note. Uh, there's no mention of Egypt anywhere now, right? There was previously. So it's clear that Hezekiah has, has dropped any sort of front that he's depending on Egypt for help. Um, he, he really is looking exclusively to the Lord um, for, for deliverance here. And uh, we'll see this actually in the next chapter. Um, it's a little bit confusing, but actually chapter 38 uh, chronologically happens before all of this. So we'll see that when we look at it uh, next. Remember, Isaiah doesn't always order things chronologically. He has the thematic reasons for the order in which he puts these chapters. But in 38.6, um, which happened again prior to what we're reading about right now, um, he specifically says, I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. So Hezekiah now knows this. Uh, he's standing on that fact, and that's the response that he's given back to Sennacherib. Uh, so Sennacherib then says, don't, don't let the Lord deceive you. Uh, he essentially says, 
look at what I've done to all these other cities, all these other countries, these nations. Their gods have not saved them. They've all been, um, notice verse 11, devoted to destruction. A um, little irony there because that's kind of the language that God uses about his enemies, right? He's going to devote them to destruction. And Sennacherib's saying that he's devoted all these other nations uh, to destruction. Um, it's, that, it's that same language. Um, so again, it's, it's, it's clarifying this is a showdown now. Right, between the gods of Assyria and the Lord God. It has, has those notes of, of Elijah right, on Mount Carmel um, and the, the prophets of, of Baal. Um, and then there's another element that he brings in here at the end of uh, verse 13. <coughs> in verse 13, where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, the king of Hina, or the king of Iva? Um, he, he now throws in um, this understanding of, of earthly kings, right? And I think there's a note here, at least from Isaiah, um, he's including this because he wants to, again, um, bring us back to that, that remembrance of, of God's covenant with David, that there would be a king to sit on the throne forever. And again, that's being threatened now at this point. So um, really, it's, it's, again, bigger than just Hezekiah and the people in uh, Jerusalem at that time, but there's actually a threat to the, the Lord's promises to David at play here. It's, it's, we could say it's, it's, you know, cosmic in its, um, in its consequences, what happens here. All right, any questions about that section? Um, that, and then especially this following uh, section from like 14, we'll take it from 14 to 20, and then we'll look at um, 21 and following. This is really the heart now um, of this chapter, and we're going to see one of like one of the great examples of prayer uh, in the Bible. There are many. Um, there's one actually mentioned this morning in the sermon. Those of you that were there heard it. If you haven't been, you'll hear it. Um, but this is another one of those great examples of uh of someone um, praying to the Lord in full faith and trust. So starting verse 14, Hezekiah received a letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. So there's this great imagery, right, of him laying out the letter in front of the Lord, almost to say, this this is what's at stake. Not that the Lord didn't know that, right, but he's he's recognizing it as well. Um, emphasizing that this is, has to do with your glory, Lord. Uh, verse 15, And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Um, so a few notes now on that, uh, that prayer. Um, 
Notice that he begins, verse 16, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, begins it addressing the Lord, and then he ends it also, right, in verse 20. Um, so now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand. So it's, a, it's clear, and even throughout, um, but both the beginning and the end, and throughout, it's a very God-centered prayer, right? Um, most of what he prays is, is simply about who God is, right, what he's done. Um, he obviously makes a petition, but, uh, there's much more to it, right? Um, and he is the God of Israel. That is, he's close to his people. Uh, he uses this image of, uh, the cherubim would have been, uh, above the ark, uh, in the temple. So this was kind of the, the representation of God's dwelling with his people as he sat kind of above the, he sat on his throne above the ark, um, Obviously, he didn't literally sit there, but that's kind of the representation of, of how God dwells with his people, at least in the Old Testament. And so he is emphasizing the fact that God is uh, their God. He is close to his people, but also he's not just a local God like all these other gods were, right? He is the maker of heaven and earth. He's the God of all the kingdoms of the earth. So he's, he's global. Um, he... Really, this is, I'm stealing this, this phrase from one of the commentators, but it, I think it's very helpful. He says, um, this commentator says that this prayer is fundamentally an act of worship, right? Uh, that lifts Hezekiah's gaze upward, away from himself, out of himself, and into the presence of God, which is really what he needs in that moment, right? That's, that strengthens his faith. Uh, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't lose sight of the present circumstances the present problems right but it but it those problems are now seen from a different perspective uh for hezekiah uh, because of this prayer and it becomes more than simply save us your people but rather um kind of like the the prayer in the lord's prayer right when it says your kingdom come your will be done uh on earth as it is in heaven he's that's the kind of prayer that he's, he's praying. Um, he, another kind of difference that's interesting, if you note here, verse um, 20, he says, So now, O Lord, our God, but if you flip back to um, verse, uh, where is it, 4? Yeah. He, remember, in, so in his address to Isaiah, the message, he says, it may be that the Lord, your God, will hear the words of the Rabshakeh. Now, I don't think that means that Hezekiah didn't see God as his own God at that time, but I think there's a definite strengthening of his faith now at this point. Previously, it was, I'm, I need to go into the Lord's presence, but I also need Isaiah to pray for us. Now it's, I myself am addressing the Lord directly. Um, we're, we're in that situation, but I also, there's a sense that, you know, as Hezekiah said, is saying, I, I have faith and trust in this God. He is my God. He is our God. Um, but he also noticed, doesn't, he doesn't dismiss what the Assyrians have accomplished at this point, right? He recognizes, he, he, he says it, again, the Lord knows this already, but he's kind of appealing to the Lord. This is what, what has happened. Um, the Assyrians have laid waste to all of these other nations, but he knows there's a fundamental difference between the true God and those false gods of these other nations. And so he can rest in the power of the one 
true God. This, this is the kind of prayer that uh, all of us should long for, right? This, this God-centered, worshipful prayer. Um, and it's really Hezekiah's finest hour as a king. Um, he's going to stand firm uh, and, and just rest in whatever the Lord will do for his people. So that's followed then, starting in verse 21. We get another message from Isaiah, or from the Lord, through Isaiah, uh, back to Hezekiah. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. We'll pause. We'll, we'll try to hopefully get through the rest of it. But uh, notice the astounding statement there, right? Because you have prayed. Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, this is the word the Lord has spoken concerning him. Um, Isaiah is the Lord himself, really, and Isaiah, they're directly tying the Lord's intervention to uh, Hezekiah's prayer. Um, does that threaten our notion of God's sovereignty? No, it shouldn't, right? There's no contrast or conflict there between the Lord choosing to act um, as a result of the prayers of his people and his sovereign rule, his sovereign plan, right? The Lord ordains not only the ends, but also the means. And that includes the prayers as well of his people, right? But it is a wonderful privilege for us that the Lord does choose to act when his people pray, right? Um, it's something that we should look forward to being a participant in, in the carrying out of his plans through our prayers, um, there's no, there's no conflict there. Um, he chooses to act the way he has always intended, but he chooses to do it through historical means, but also he chooses to do it as a result of the prayers of his people. Uh, and that's what he's going to do here. Um, let me read through just quickly this, this, uh, oracle against, there's really an oracle against Sennacherib. Then there's a sign that the Lord's going to give Hezekiah. Uh, and then there's another message about uh, Sennacherib that he gives. Uh, verse 22. She despises you. She scorns you. The virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you. The daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Again, addressing Sennacherib's pride, right? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have mocked the Lord, and you have said, with, my, with my many chariots I have gone up the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon, to cut down its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses, to come to its remotest height, its most fruitful forests. He's saying, I did all of these things. I dug wells and drank waters to dry up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. It's a picture of, of the king is sort of saying, like, you know, I just put my foot down and I stop all the waters, right, in the Nile. Um, this is the attitude Sennacherib has. Um, the Lord says, Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins, while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded, and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown. So yeah, you've done all this, but actually God is saying, I've done it, right? Right? Uh, you were just an instrument. Verse 28, I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in and you're raging against me. 
Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. So he's using the imagery of uh, a wild horse being tamed. But also the, the phrase about putting my hook in your nose, it was known, uh, widely known that the Assyrians led away their prisoners of war with hooks in their noses. So the Lord is saying, I'm going to do this to you. Um, so this is the, the judgment that's coming against him. Again, the pride is denounced, um, the pride in what he's done, but it's really God who's done it. Um, and the Lord is going to judge him uh, for, his, for his arrogance. Um, notice also just briefly that this message actually probably doesn't ever end up getting a Sennacherib's ears. Right? This is the Lord giving this message to Hezekiah to bolster his faith and say, this, this is what I'm going to do to uh, to the enemy of yours. Okay, verse 30 to 32. We get a sign from the Lord. This shall be the sign for you. This year you shall eat what grows of itself, and in the second year what springs from that. Then in the third year sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So he's going to give a, an agricultural sign that's actually also pointing to a more spiritual sign. Uh, essentially, um, th they've been under siege for who knows how long at this point, but they've not really had the chance to sow crops. The Lord says, uh, that doesn't matter. I'm going to bring fruit out of the ground for you for two years without you sowing and reaping. Like It's just going to be there. Uh, and then in the third year, you'll, you'll be able to sow uh, and reap what you've sown. So he's going to provide for them. There's this, this picture, really, of life coming out of death. Uh, but then he ultimately says that this is, this is like you as people as well, right? Uh, I'm going to bring life out of death. There's going to be a remnant here. The Lord's purposes were always to discipline, to chastise, but not to destroy completely. Um, and he often uses suffering, right, in order to, to strengthen uh, the, the faith of his people and bring them to a point where they, they have to trust in him. Verses 33 to 35, we get another note about what the Lord is going to do concerning the king of Assyria. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. He shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it. And then note again, for my own sake, and for the sake of my servant David. So there's again that like broadening of the horizon. Right? This is more than just this moment in history, but that this has to do with my promises to my people. I will keep them. Right? Uh, I, will, I will be true to them. Um, and it's also pointing towards what the second half of the book is going to be all about, which is the servant of God. There's going to be this transition here in the coming chapters to all this language, we know it, right? The suffering servant. But there's a there's this focus on the servant of God um, that's coming, this this bigger, uh, more perfect servant uh, of the Lord who we know ultimately is, is Christ. Um, but the Lord's going to act uh, for his own sake and for the sake of his servant, David. And then we finish the chapter with this brief, uh, it's almost like in passing, matter of fact kind of description of what happens to um, the Assyrian army. This is how the Lord is going to accomplish his purposes. 
Um, it's amazing, and yet it's just a couple of short verses, right? And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. He's there for about 20 years before verse 38 happens. And he, as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. Um, it's ironic, again, there's a lot of irony in Isaiah, and especially in this chapter, but uh, it's ironic that, and I think very intentional, that um, the chapter opens with Hezekiah going into the house of his God, right? As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. And the Lord saves him and his people. Um, what happens to Sennacherib when he goes into the house of his God? He's assassinated, right? Um, quite the contrast. Uh, and the Lord does bring about the judgment that he had promised uh, he would. Um, all right, in just a couple of brief minutes, what kind of lessons can we pull from this? Um, I think there's, there's a lot of things here, but uh, again, we've just seen the contrast between the outcome of pride, right, and, uh, and the outcome of trust and humility in the Lord. And those are linked, right? Trusting the Lord requires humility. Um, it requires recognizing that we can't depend upon ourselves. We have to depend on him. Um, Hezekiah recognized that and, and trusted the Lord. Um, but we too, right, are tested in our own lives to, to trust the Lord and, and to, um, to show humility in doing so. Um, you know, we, we know at the very end of, of Isaiah, the Lord says that, this is the one to whom I look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit, right? Uh, and trembles at my word. Another lesson, um, I already mentioned this, but um, God does use means to carry out his purposes, right? We would say he usually uses means to carry out historical means. We can analyze those, look at those, but he can also act directly if he wants to, right? Um, what, what do you think of when you, when you read that the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians? What does that call to mind? Perhaps another angel of the Lord bringing death. The final plague in Egypt, right? And the Lord bringing judgment again on his enemies there. So he, he can and will do that when he, when he wants to. But he often uses means, and he uses one of the means he uses is the prayers of his people. Um, another big lesson from this section uh, but even from the whole book, is that the Lord sometimes brings really difficult circumstances into our lives, right? In order for us to, to recognize um, our own inability and our need to depend on him, right? The Lord, Lord brings suffering, um, and sometimes the purpose of that suffering is to strip away everything else so we have nowhere else to turn but to the Lord. And it's difficult, um, but if any of you have been in, in difficult circumstances, whatever they may be, and have struggled and suffered, you, you recognize at the end of it that your faith is stronger for it. You have a, a more real and, and sure and, and deep trust in the Lord after coming through that than you did before. And, and that's true here, I think, for God's people. Um, another lesson that I think is really comforting, even for us as Christians here and now, is the fact that the fate of his people is bound up with his own glory and honor. Right? And the fact that those are tied together should, should help us to rest confidently. The Lord is not going to let his people go. If you're trusting in Christ, 
um, if you're united by faith to Jesus, um, the Lord's uh, very keeping of his promises is tied to your life as well in that, right? He cannot let you go because if he does, he's going back on his promises, which he, he won't. Uh, he can't do that. All right. Um, let me pray and then you guys can be dismissed. And then feel free to stick around if you have any questions. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it challenges us as we see uh, pride rebuked. Would you help us to recognize our own pride and help us to turn to you in repentance and humility and in trust? Uh, we thank you, Lord, that your word encourages us and um, shows us how you are a God who keeps his promises. And that if we're in Christ, then uh, our lives are bound up in those promises as well. Uh, and so we pray that you'd help us to rest in that great truth. Uh, we ask again, Lord, for your blessing on our time of worship now. And would you help us this day uh, to glorify Christ? We pray all this in his name. Amen. Amen.